Just a quick word before we start this emergency life for this week. We have decided in 2021 that we would like to bring some more clinical updates to the podcast. That is, intermittently on the show, we're going to be speaking to experts in different aspects of emergency care that really relate to your practice. So intermittently in the feed, you'll see podcasts known as clinical updates. These will be a little shorter than the usual podcast format, but also we hope that they will align with some of the courses that you are doing um, as a postgraduate. So for example, with emergency nursing, we will have guests talking about content that aligns with your postgraduate studies. It's important to note though that these Podcasts don't replace any of the content that you're doing at your university or your emergency site, but rather they augment it. So they act as additional resources or content of interest. So please let your clinical educators, your lecturers know about the clinical updates and we hope you enjoy. And with that, we bring you Joe Neal with End of Life Care in the Emergency Department. Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. My name's Jo Neal. Um, I currently am employed 0.6, so three days a week with um, Donate Life SA, um, the Organ and Tissue Donation Authority here in Adelaide. Um, And I also do work uh, one shift a week clinically in the emergency department of Royal Adelaide Hospital. end of life as well as their families is is a huge part of our job right um i hope it's not too sort of oversimplifying this but i think it might be good leveler to start off by talking about what end of life care is and what the goals of end end of life care are i guess when you're talking about end of life in an emergency department it's imminent it's it's people coming in and obviously under active resus or people who do come in mostly through our resus rooms who um despite best efforts um their death will will occur um or that a decision's made in that resus room that with the withdrawing of care is going to lead to their imminent death so we're talking sort of immediate to maybe hours um that that someone is probably going to die um so it's very, it's always very sudden. It's always, it doesn't matter how old somebody is. Um, it can, you know, it can, it can happen. It will happen uh, quite suddenly and unexpectedly for, for people. Uh, and I guess and the goals we, of good end of life care are, please, sorry, are what we I would all want. Um, that's okay. In terms of, you know, good pain relief, having your family or your loved ones around you, um, Having in an environment that is conducive to, you know, quietness, privacy, um, attending to someone's dignity and respect, and 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 obviously, you know, lots of symptom symptom management. So make, making sure that that person is comfortable, um, and and at the end of their life, providing them with that opportunity to um, to have that good care. That's I guess that's really important. 
yeah. And we do spend a lot of time at the beginning of something where, you know, the outlook isn't looking that great. We spend a lot of time trying to work out whether or not um, the family and the person would want us to keep going and get them to ICU and those sorts of things. Um, I, I know, especially, you know, when age is a factor, but of course, you know, uh, end of life in in the emergency department can be unexpected from all sort of all across the lifespan, um, but we do tend a lot spend a lot of time running around trying to figure out well what were people's wishes in this situation, even though we know personally what the long term uh, or even short term outcomes are going to be. Um, in collaboration with Donate Life South Australia. The emergency department at Royal Adelaide have an end-of-life service, which feels like something that all of our EDs need. And you were talking before we start recording that you have um, had people from presentations that you've given approach you to to see how how can we how can we do this in our ED? Um, can you tell us about the service and how it came about? Yeah. So. Um... It was an innovation from Donate Life. So it was a Donate Life uh, initiative that the State Medical Director and Nursing Director, uh, it had been an existing pro a service in the intensive care unit here. Um, and that's been in operation for about three years. And in uh, October 2018, um, there was an expression of interest from Donate Life for a, uh, a clinical nurse in, in emergency to start up. Uh, an end-of-life follow-up service for, for families and loved ones of patients who die in ED. Um, this was quite an innovation because it, we're the first ED um, that I know of um, to, to have such a service. Um, and uh, I guess from a Donate Life point of view, um, their, their issue was that all patients um, deserve quality end-of-life care, um, particularly in the acute care settings, uh, that organ and tissue donation, um, the opportunity for people if they are able to donate um, should be part of good quality end-of-life care um, and to set up a referral service um, that obviously has um, the, the whole, there's several, obviously several aims, but uh, highlighting that end-of-life care is really important in emergency and that um, that family members are supported and that are followed up um, after a traumatic loss and a sudden loss um, because we know that um, complicated grief can emerge as a result of um, people who, who don't have their grief dealt with um, following sudden, sudden and unexpected loss. Um, so that was a, an innovation uh, from Donate Life um, to... I guess highlight the, the the number of deaths that are occurring. Um, Royal Adelaide Hospital has um, an enormous number of patients. It's the busiest ED uh, in the state, um, and we see about three, on average, about three to four deaths a week, uh, about 150 deaths a year. So that's a, quite a large number of um, of families and loved ones who would normally leave an emergency department with their loved one who's just passed away um, with a blue plastic bag of clothes. They, they leave the hospital and they would never be followed up. They would never get that, um, that support and those questions. Also getting feedback about what sort of care we provide in the emergency department. Are we doing it well? What can we do better? That kind of thing. So it's a very valuable quality improvement tool for us as well. 
Thanks for that, Joe. We're quite keen to learn a bit more about the role, but before we get into that, can you tell us how like the aspect of Donate Life and also end-of-life care has become such a big part of your life? What, what interests you specifically about it? I guess uh, I've been an emergency nurse for over 30 years and I've worked um, both here and overseas. Um, and I think when I first started nursing, uh, we maybe had one lecture on, you know, end-of-life care, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talking about the stages of grief. Um, and I didn't expect that when I went into emergency nursing that, um, you know, you, you kind of go in thinking you're going to be saving lives and and, and helping people. Um, but I think probably early on in my career, I, I realised that end-of-life care um, wasn't done very well in emergency departments. So it was a, a busy, chaotic, noisy environment um, and I think I've always been very passionate about that aspect that, you know, people talk about having a baby and, and their birthing plans and how they would like that to happen, but nobody ever really discusses how they would like their end of life to be. Um, and so I, I think that's probably, it's, it's been an area where um, I've been quite interested in for most of my nursing career. And so the opportunity that was given to me uh, a couple of years ago to actually take this role on was a really good fit for me. Uh, and it sounds a little bit morbid and people, but when people see me at work, they Im immediately go, oh, Joe, end of life. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of a trigger for people uh, and it's a little bit strange. Um, even the state medical director um, of Donate Life, who is very passionate about end-of-life care, has called me a little bit peculiar as well that I've got this passion <laughs> for this area. So um, I'm not sure to take that as a compliment or not, but... <laughs> I think yeah. it's great that you've progressed. I, I, I was similar. I remember learning very briefly about it in my undergrad. And then a few years ago, I went into academia and I had to actually prepare a lecture on it. And I was, and I, I didn't really give much thought to end of life care for those reasons, like we're here to save lives type things. And I think I was had the attitude that's similar to a lot of probably uh, emergency nurses out there that if someone's dying, we need to get them out of the ward out of the department as quick as we can. Um, and I'd like to maybe ask you a question about that a bit later. But before we do, can you just tell us a bit about your role within the service? So you talked about the follow-up. Like what does that entail? Yeah, so when when um, family are referred to the service, so the patient uh, is referred, so the nurse, you generally will make that call. So at medical consensus of end of life or, or if someone has died under resus, um, a call will be made to the uh, Donate Life um, nursing coordinators who are on call uh, 24 hours a day. And when they take the referral from the ED, um, they will document the patient's name and their personal details and what they've come into hospital with. And they'll also get next of kin details. Um, that entails them to put that data into a, a database, um, which then I use uh, about eight to 10 weeks after the death of the patient. I'll get an auto um, notification that um, a call is due to, to the family. So I make the follow-up phone calls um, to the designated next of kin um, who've been with that loved one who's died in ED. Um, and the call that I make, uh, it's a cold call. They know they do get a letter to say in, in, a, in a thinking of you pack at the time of the death to say that they will get a phone call. It's purely voluntary. They can actually at that time decline the call or when I do make it, um, I just, I don't tell them I'm a nurse. I just do a, an anonymous, it's just a cold call that I'm calling on behalf of the end of life follow-up service. 
and I asked them a number of questions um, about the care that they received, um, the communication, um, was the level of care, did they think that it was appropriate, um, did they think there was, you know, that there was too much intervention or not enough, um, and, it, and it, it addresses, I guess, the, the questions of overall care and dignity, um, the appropriateness of the treatment, and, and also we ask a question about um, organ and tissue donation. Uh, obviously, if someone's died in ED, um, they could be a corneal donor, but we asked the question of, you know, how would that have impacted you uh, as an individual um, if that had been appropriate, if that question had been asked, had you ever discussed um, donation? Um, and I guess that's a fairly important question that, you know, it may, it was, wasn't possible for your loved one, but if it had been, how would that have made you feel at the time? Um, and you get some really interesting responses from people from, you know, no, we never discussed it to yes, uh, he or she was became a corneal donor. Um, we've had a number of those since we started the, the service that have actually gone on to be um, corneal donors. Um, so it's, yeah, and, and I guess it's also, we, I ask questions about um, how, how they found the phone call. Did, you know, would, is, it, is it okay for me to provide that feedback, de-identified? back to the ED um, so that we can improve the care that we give. And, and I can also feedback positive comments um, to staff. I, I can look up and see who's looked after that particular patient and family. And staff will often ask me, um, you know, have you done the call to so-and-so and what was the feedback like? And, and for as you would know, for, for staff in ED, we get a lot of criticism. Um, we get a lot of bad media um, and I think to, for the staff to know that they're doing a really good job around end-of-life care uh, is very gratifying for them. Fascinating service. It's amazing. <laughs> so um, I'm really interested. It feels like there's two parts to the conversation that you have six, uh, about six weeks later, yeah. Um, yeah, it's usually around eight to, to ten it. weeks later, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, and so there's two, it feels like there's two parts. There's you giving them support, but then there's also you gathering some information from them about how you, how our EDs can improve end of life care. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So, yes. What, um, yeah. So, what do you, how do you use the information that you take from the, the families of the person who died? So I enter that um, that information into a into Redcap, so into a, a the Redcap database, um, and that's used to. There's actually been a, um, a I guess an, an audit done or an appraisal done of of a, a of that information. So um, we're hopefully looking at maybe um, publishing some of that um, in the new year, looking moving forward. Um, and also, um, obviously, as a quality improvement tool um, for the ED um, to use that data and say this is what we're doing well. Um, and looking back on, I try and put in comments verbatim that the, the family give me uh, over the phone um, about the care. You you mentioned before that a lot of the staff will approach you and say, "Have you have you spoken yet to that person?" So they remember it, but where the, where they don't. Uh, think to to ask you is there somewhere where they can go and have a look at um, what what their care how, how their care was perceived 
Um, at this stage, no, there isn't. There, there, there's not any other way um, that they can go into that um, that database and, and look and see. Uh, and it's all de-identified anyway, so um, yeah. they wouldn't have any way at this stage to to go in and look at that data. Um, yeah. yeah. So, do you spend a bit of time going around and saying, "Oh, um, you remember that patient from?" eight weeks ago, um, I had a chat with them. Yeah, I, if I do get particular feedback, and often family are amazing, they remember, uh, they'll remember faces, they'll say it was a lady doctor or it was a, you know, a particular nurse. They might not remember names, obviously, but uh, it is quite amazing how much people remember. Um, and with their permission, I say, you know, I, I can actually look up and see who was working that shift, what area they were in, and and are you happy for me to provide that feedback to them? And they're usually very happy. They often say, oh, you know, they've probably looked after 100 million patients since I've been in. But it is quite amazing how staff do recall, particularly if it's been traumatic, um, a traumatic death or a very sudden death. They, the staff do remember. Um, and it's really nice um, giving that feedback and saying, they, you know, the, the family member remembered you. Um, I've spoken to a couple of the, the ED consultants who um, really are really grateful for that feedback and knowing that they've just spent that little bit of extra time uh, communicating to the family and explaining to them what's gone on, what's happened, why this person has died or is going to imminently die uh, is incredibly valuable and I think it rewards them knowing that they're doing the right thing, that they are, um, you know, working very well uh not just in terms of their clinical skills but their communication skills which family really appreciate it's a bit of an un unsignal question but how how many people do you think you've talked with since you started the role um i was looking at the numbers the other day and i've done over 120 calls since the service started. Um, and I've had, I think I've had probably about 40 either declines. So ringing people and they say, no, thank you. The, the care was excellent, but I don't have any further, you know, reason to discuss it with you. Yeah. Uh, a couple of people I've called, they've just been too distressed, distressed to talk to me. Um, and then there's been a number of a few people who I've not been able to contact, so their number's been either disconnected or um, I usually try three times to contact the family and will sometimes leave a message. And if they don't call me back or contact me, then I close the case yeah. um, because I don't I don't want to I don't want to bother people. It's not meant to be a you know uh, something that that people feel that they have to do. And for some people, um, it's very therapeutic to talk about. The loss of their loved one and for other people they don't they don't want to discuss it it's too traumatic for them still yep no i completely understand that um so how are we doing um are we caring for our, our patients in end of life care as well as you think we could be um i think we're doing a pretty good job in terms of uh providing symptom management um we're getting much better at um, once medical consensus is reached and having that discussion early on with family um, and doctors writing up um, medication for end-of-life care. Um, it's the physical environment of ED 
is something that we really can't change. Uh, we moved into this new hospital um, three years ago and it's nice because there are private rooms and the, the doors can be shut in all of the rooms, um, which does provide some privacy um, and, yeah, a little bit, of, little bit more quiet than uh, the old department. Um, but we still, there's still a lot of issues with the fact that it's a noisy, busy, chaotic environment. The lights are on all the time. Uh, there's an overhead paging system that goes through all of the patient rooms, which is really annoying to people. Um, but I think what we are doing well is um, communi communication could be better. Uh, I think there's a number of calls that I've done that family members mentioned that they've been spoken to by a junior member of the medical team and they would have appreciated uh, somebody more senior and less jargon, less... Uh, less medical language to be used and, and a bit more layperson appropriate um, that at a time when they're, you know, they're hearing news that their loved one has died or is dying, what they're hearing is often they're not understanding or they're having to ask for the nurse to clarify once that doctor's left the room, which is a common thing as ED nurses that we probably hear about lots of things, not just about dying. Um, so I think education around good communication, clear, concise information, um, allowing the, the family to be with their loved one um, is also very important. Not, not putting them in a room. Um, had a bit of feedback about family members arriving after their loved one's already in the department and being put into a waiting room, uh, into a family room, and nobody coming for a period of time. Uh, and that can be because they're, they're resussing the patient or that they're just so busy with everything else. Um, but that is something that we've also that we also need to be aware of and, and I feed that back to the staff and say it's really good if you can just put your head in the door and say to the family member, we know that you're here, we're really busy, but we'll come and talk to you in 10 minutes or something because people don't like being left on their own not knowing what's going on. No, I think people are usually quite happy you know, even if it's not end of life care, to to wait if, if we at least tell them what they're waiting for. Um, have you had a big increase in the um, uh, 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 amount of um, families being present during resuscitation since you started this, or was that always a big part of your work? No, there's been a few a number of cases where family members have said that they've been brought in during a resus. Um, which they found quite confronting, but if they're if they're supported by a staff member who can stay with them and talk them through the process and let them know what's going on, I think they do. In hindsight, they say yes, we were we were glad that we were brought in at that time. Um, but I still think that that's something that um, we do need to work on. Um, there's very mixed views. Some people are very pro bringing family in. Uh, other people say no, it's too confronting. Um, you know, it would be too upsetting for the family or the medical staff to feel uncomfortable with that. It's a, it's a real, um, that's something that we, that we really need to look at um, and put in processes that, you know, we can have staff there that can just support the family. I think that's the problem, that we have such a problem with staffing and with senior staff, um, and that's not just our emergency department, it's overall that to 
to have that person there as an extra to say, you know, ideally I'm going to support the family while the rest of you are, are doing the resource or, you know, doing the patient care, uh, that would be ideal. In a perfect world, that would be wonderful. Um, but most of the time that just doesn't happen. Yeah, and you need somebody experienced to be able to explain what's happening and really you do need somebody dedicated to the family member um, yeah. so that they can keep them apprised of what's going on because it can all look very confusing if you don't know what, what what's happening. What about other changes that you've made? Have you made any changes to your processes based on what you found out through this service? Um, I guess just doing education with the with the staff uh, around the fact that um, it, it's a it is it is a normal thing that um, it's not a failure that patients are dying in ED. It's um, it's I guess it's giving nursing staff and medical staff permission to probably talk more about it, to be a lot more open about having those conversations earlier on rather than uh, later down the track and. What we are seeing is that there are a lot of end-of-life conversations being had. It may not be that the patient dies in ED. They may go to the ward um, and die, you know, a couple of days later or a week later. Um, but that initial conversation um, is had in, in ED. So it's telling us that there's a lot of, a lot of conversations being had um, around end-of-life starting in ED. And, and I think um, the more that we talk about it and the better we get at communicating with each other about it, then the more comfortable we feel. And there is a, you know, there's a huge number of, of junior um, nursing and medical staff in our emergency department. There's a big turnover. Uh, and so, and I do, I do talks with the nursing students, the third year nursing students who do a rotation through ED and talk to them about um, end of life care because they're the ones that are coming into, you know, they're the future of nursing. Uh, and, and this is not going away. Um, I think we're going to keep getting busier and busier uh, with bed block um, and not enough beds, there's going to be patients who stay in RED for extended periods and, and end up passing away there. I'm just going to go off script a bit, Joe, if that's all right. You talked about, um, so when you can't get the person out of the department, so it's imminent that they're going to probably pass away in the ED, um, you talked about that there's things that we can do like symptom management for control of secretions, analgesia, get them comfortable, things like that. Like you said, the thing that we can't change is the actual department. So in terms of creating that quiet kind of dimly lit uh, area, peaceful area. What do you suggest sort of around that that we can do if we can't get the patient to the ward? Um, I guess m moving somebody to an area that's a little bit quieter. We do have two areas in our department that don't have as much uh, foot traffic um, and the doors can be closed. And in one of the areas, there's also ensuite bathrooms. So the family can, uh, can go in there um, close the door. There are computers in each room so we can put music on um, for the family if they want it, uh, dim the lights, turn the lights off. Um, so I guess being conscious of uh, the ge geographics of the department and, and moving that the, the patient to that those areas uh, helps. Um, other than that, there's really not a lot that we can do Geographically, I, I'm moving forward, it would be great if, um, you know, new emergency departments were a little bit designed um, by the people who are probably working in them. Um, 
that wasn't that that's never the case <laughs> um, because I think in our in our emergency department we don't even have a viewing room so once patients do pass away um, there's no there's no room that they can be taken to other than a patient care area um, before they go to the mortuary um, and and I find that I found that staggering that um, nobody the reason I did ask that when the when the hospital was being built and we came for a tour and I actually asked somebody where the viewing room was and I was told that we didn't need one because no one was going to die in ED. Um, They would go straight to the ward (laughs) once they came to ED. And I thought, wow, I'd love to speak to that person now because I wouldn't have a job doing what I do if nobody died in ED. Um, So there's that perception that uh, we're all, we're going to save everyone's lives. Um, but if they are dying, we'll get them out straight away and they'll go to a ward and they'll die peacefully there. Um, and that we know just doesn't happen. You get with your follow-up calls, which I think, like, I don't think I could do your job. I think making that phone call would fill me with dread. More probably just from my insecurities about having that sort of difficult conversation with the, with the family. But the kind of providing the feedback to the staff must be, must be such a high, like it would be just such a roller coaster of emotions and stuff. With um, like, do, do you get with the when they when they provide you with feedback? Is the level of noise in the ED ever a factor? Do they often mention it, or is it more that their focus is more on the staff and how how kind they were, or the the care that they received from the staff? Yeah, no, they do, they do. Um, a lot of people talk about how noisy it was, um, and that the environment is chaotic it's busy they often say you know we can see that everybody's really busy that everyone's rushing around um but I think they probably they, but they do also say that um they love the new hospital they love the, the the paintings on the walls and um they like the fact that uh you can close the door on the rooms and and um and they often do say you know we that that might be their only experience of ever coming into an emergency department. And people, I guess the media paint a picture that's very different to our reality, to our ED reality. And people do comment that um, despite the fact that it's busy and it's noisy, they appreciate that staff do the little things that count. So providing a warm blanket, giving them tea and coffee. Um, I have a a little Ikea trolley that I... um, when I started this service and I've got a cupboard that has biscuits and tea and coffee and and an urn and and the staff can take that into the family and, you know, give them something to eat and drink and um, that's their little end of life trolley that they can do and the staff feel like they're doing something, Um, whereas before this started they they didn't have anything to offer people um, and they felt that they weren't doing a good enough job. Uh, even providing that, the thinking of you pack that we give to the family. So that has a little book on loss and grief. It has a the letter to say that they'll get a phone call and a book on what happens when someone dies in hospital with some useful information. Um, staff do feel that, that, um, that they're giving something to that family rather than just walking away empty-handed. So your model sounds quite amazing. <laughs> so if someone was to come up to you tomorrow um, and, and ask you about how they could improve their ED's model of care when it comes to end of life, what would your key messages be for them? Uh, I think having a de- dedicated person or some, you know, clinical champions who, who are very passionate about end of life care and who can provide education um, to, to all staff. Uh, I think having the support of medical staff is really important. 
Um, it, it's really essential to have the medical staff on board as well um, because obviously they're the ones that will be communicating uh, that information that primarily to the, to the family members. Um, yeah, and I guess having... I think it's probably having having a dedicated person to, uh, if you're going to follow up with family, you can't have a nurse who's working on the floor and working clinical shifts do that. There's no spare time. There's no you, You've got to have a quiet place. You've got to get yourself in the right headspace to make those sorts of calls um, and to give family that that feedback um, or to uh, you know allow family to give that feedback. You've got to have the time, and it is very labour intensive. It's time intensive. Um, so yeah, I would say that you would you would need definitely a dedicated um, staff member to be doing that. What about the future, Joe? Have you got any other plans in place for improvements based on what you now know, or for the service itself? Um, I guess in terms of moving forward, um, ongoing education uh, and and getting those clinical champions to really. Um, step up a little bit more uh, in in the area Um, and I think as well looking at what we mentioned touched on before about um, family presence during recess and and involving um, next of kin more I'd really like to focus on that and see how staff feel about that and whether or not we can improve um, family presence in the department Mm. Yeah, that's one of those things where it's difficult with evidence. It just coincidentally, I was uh, one of the things I do is I review for the um, for the Australian Resuscitation Council our guidelines and stuff. You know, just one of many reviewers. But um, it came across my desk uh, last week was family presence during um, during resuscitation and. You know, the outcome of that paper is basically, you know, they have a little background. There's no evidence one way or the other. Um, and it, it, it's actually hard to quantify and measure, you know, the difference that it makes having somebody there or not. So I think, yeah, there's, we've talked about this for, you know, I've been in ED nursing for over, uh, well, around about 30 years. And it, it, has been a conversation that we've been having for so long and we still don't really have a, a resolution to to it. And you mentioned, you know, the staff, some staff are comfortable, some staff are not. So that's a hard one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is a hard one. It's very difficult. And, yes, it has been, that discussion has been going for a long time. Um, yeah. Great, Joe. Thank you so much for letting us all know. I was saying to you before we pressed record that uh, you're probably going to get quite a few people wanting to be able to make contact with you. Um, is there a particular way, should they contact you through us? Would that be the easiest for you? Yeah, sure. Or they can email me if they would like to. Okay. Um, I, I'm not too sure whether you want your email um, posted on our website, but um, we, we can work that out. If people are really keen to to talk further with you, as you've had people when you presented at ISIN last year, you've had people still contacting you, so I'm sure they can get in touch with you through us. Um, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to put your email up on a website, sure. to be to be perfectly honest. But um, yeah, no, no, that's yeah, no, that would be that would be more appropriate, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Great. 
Joe, thanks so much. This is this has been really interesting, and and it's something that we really need. Uh, we need a Joe Neal in every department. I think um, that would be great. John, did you have anything? Oh, final just thanks to- so much, Joe, for um, shedding light on how we can improve end of life care in the ED. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening in. Just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers. The music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and the Millions. Um, They can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. If you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show, why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message, or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life.